You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Breda. Well, buenas tardes from La Vuelta España. Once again, my name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of tonight's episode. And despite what you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am not today in Breda for reasons already explained in this Vuelta a España. I'm joining the race on Monday, well, tomorrow. I'm flying to Madrid and then driving up to the Basque Country where I will join La Vuelta and follow it all the way to the finish in Madrid. I am joined tonight from the Isle of Wight, I believe, a place I've never been. Um, he is a two-time Vuelta a España stage winner, two-time Tour de France stage winner. I hope I'm getting these numbers right. Giro d'Italia stage winner, Liege Baston Liege winner, Giro di Lombardia winner, winner of too many other races to mention. And as of, well, not very um, long from, well, a few weeks away, I think, um, an acclaimed author. He's one of the finest riders of his generation and possibly cycling's most decorated podcaster as of today. It's Dan Martin, aka Crosswinds, I think you were nicknamed at one point in one team. Disco Dan, Danny Martin, for the purposes of this podcast. Good evening, Dan. It's great to be here, Daniel. Yeah, really. Uh, I think this is my second appearance on the podcast. Though, it no? is. I was, first, I is a, the Tour first, of France. first is a bona fide guest, Dan. Um, Dan, did I get the, those numbers right? That Palmares, that very, that very sort of abbreviated Palmares. Two stage wins. Oh, I lose. Oh, I lose track. I think. I think the acclaimed awful one is still one to be lived up to. Hopefully, that that will happen. But uh, I, I but wondered. Yeah, I mean, uh, two two stages of the Volta Espana, which is uh, yeah, why we're why I'm hopefully quite useful on this podcast. I wondered earlier whether you could name the locations of those two um, Vuelta España stage wins. The second one was it's quite a difficult name. It's it's things like this that it really helps to have just written a book because obviously I've I've read oh, that, so you... that those words a million times the last few months. And well, now, uh, now I'm yeah, expecting like the first perfect one was... pronunciation, and perfect memory recall. Go on. The, the first one was stage nine of the 2011 Vuelta España to uh, La Covetia. And then the second one was uh, stage three of 2021. So 10 years apart, which is uh, really quite daunting. But, and uh, yeah, uh, to Laguna Negra. The Vinuesa. So like a... could, you, could you point to it on a map? Because I don't think I was there that day, but I can't really remember where it was in Spain. It's quite, it's probably, it was probably the closest stage to where I live in Andorra. So it was, uh, okay. we went through a place called Soria. Which yes. is uh, where now my wife remember. actually does, did a big cross country race there. So they've got a quite celebrated cross country race, one of the biggest in Spain. And uh, yeah, so that's why that stage, it really is one of those places where you ride through these remote villages and see, oh, I recognize that name. And then uh, bizarrely, one of my one of the guys I've met in cycling, he said to me, he goes on holiday to Laguna Negra when, uh, when I met him the last <laughs> time. So it's quite a random place to go. It looked very different that day because it was dark, I think, when we finished because of, of it being nearly November. And Dan, you mentioned your wife. That is the reason why you are joining us from the Isle of Man, um, Isle of Man, Isle of Wight, is it not? Yes, it is. Yeah, we've come over to see family over the over the summer and we head back to Andorra on uh, Wednesday, actually, Wednesday to Thursday. So, yeah, right in the middle of the mountain, the first mountain station. So this Walter Espana, I believe. So not ideally timed, but, uh, but yeah, well, uh, I'm... Uh, I'll be travelling those days, but uh, yeah, it's been a well, a beautiful summer as most of the UK listeners will attain to. I think. Um, before we sink our fangs into the meat of today's stage, um, I was just wondering as well, watching today's stage, knowing that you would be on the podcast um, today. It's not long; you haven't been retired very long at all. I, I was wondering whether you get any pangs whatsoever, and you know there are obviously riders in the peloton, um, Alejandro Valverde being one very prominent one, who are considerably older than you and are still performing at a very high level. Do you ever think uh, maybe I called it a date a little bit too early? Obviously, when you see these epic mountain stages and you see the guys crossing the line first, you think, uh, how could I've got on that day? But then when you see starts like the last, how the last few days have been, and you really. I understand what goes into being on the start line. It isn't just that you don't just show up on the, on the day and, and get the results. I understand what goes into it and also the level of stress and intensity that's involved in racing these days, especially in the first days of a Grand Tour. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm really quite happy being on this side of the fence now, to be honest. And uh, yeah, I'm I think I feel quite content that my I had a I had a great a great career. I really enjoyed it, and 
I've left at the right time because I still love going out on my bike. I think that's really important. How's the fitness? How's the weight? Yeah, full disclosure, I got really quite fat about November time, and I realised, yeah, I need to... uh, Relatively, relatively, for a cyclist, cyclist fat. I was probably about seven or eight kilos heavier than the Tour Tour de France weight, and then now I've got back down to probably two, three kilos over because I've I've started doing a bit more riding with the summer weather and running and... Yeah, I've actually found my my happy place as far as level of exercise, but also level of other commitments. With the obviously, I've spent a lot of time with the book lately and foraging this passage towards uh, in the media as well, which I've really I'm really quite fond of. I've, I've discovered I can talk about cycling as well as I can ride. Well, I hope so anyway. Well done. We're going to test those credentials right now because without further ado, we're going to go to the first feature of today's podcast. Take it away, Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. It is el resumen a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. Dan Martin. Dan Martin. You have 90 seconds to sum up today's third stage of La Vuelta a España. I'm going to start counting you down now. Three, two, one. Dan, off you go. Okay, so I'm going to be careful not to talk too fast so you can understand. Totally flat stage. Not a whole lot happened, which the, all the GC guys and everybody in the peloton would have been quite happy with. Looking at the the route and the fact it's in Holland, they would have expected crosswinds, bad weather, none of that. Really quite run-of-the-mill stage, apart from one important GC guy falling out, in my opinion, Michael Woods. He was going into the race in great, great condition. He's now out of the race, out of the fight. He would have been important on those steep climbs. In the uh, once the race gets to Spain, but he didn't even make it there, which is unfortunate. So, as the quite a strong breakaway, not many teams would have expected such a strong break, break of six riders. Guys like Thomas again, Julius Vandenberg, really big engines, especially on the flat, wouldn't have expected such a strong group, group. So, which led to a very high average speed with that little bit of wind, a lot of stress in the peloton, a few tumbles for a few of the riders. Richard Carapaz, I saw a tumble as well. But overall, quite a relaxed day and the sprint finish. Pretty straightforward, not many corners, quite a nice right wide road, although the TV cameras didn't really pick up Sam Bennett being on the left-hand side of the road in the sprint. I think it showed, he's really shown that that first sprint victory is the most 15 important. 15 seconds, Dan. You better get the classifications. There. 15 seconds. I don't even know who's in the lead anymore. I know that Sam Bennett won the stage. Great result for him. Who was second? Mad- uh, Pedersen again. So two very clear, strongest sprinters. Beep, beep, beep. Um, not a bad effort. Um, but okay, yeah. I probably missed the GC, didn't uh, I? Yeah, I, I would say, I, I would say, failing, that's to name, this time. I would say failing to name the leader of the World Dice Spaniards, a fairly major oversight. Um, but otherwise, I'll give you a seven out of ten. Um, Dan, um, we're also giving wine glass ratings. I know you're fond of a glass of wine as well. Um, wine glass ratings to the stages. This will go feed into a, uh, a wine glass rating for the World Dice Spaniards. Um, when we get to Madrid, entertainment value, Dan, out of five, what would you give today? I think it was one. No? I think it was, mm, uh, yeah. the, especially the organisers. It, it was one of those days that would have, when the riders were, looked at the route, they would have been really nervous about today. And I think everybody's going to be quite happy with what ha- how it happened, apart from the guys who crashed, obviously, because, uh, yeah, the fans, we really wanted some crosswind action, maybe some even rain, just to spice things up a bit. I think the organisers thought that also with the small, there's a lot of twist, technical running, quite a technical running in places, but, not too bad, but uh, yeah, in the end, it, w- it was definitely a stage designed for crosswinds, but the stage kind of fell flat slightly. But yeah, it led to a, there's not many sprinter stages in this race. So I think they were obviously Sam Bennett and Bora would be quite happy. Maybe we'll get on to why, certainly at Garmin, I can remember you being nicknamed crosswinds. Maybe we'll get onto that later. But Dan, we should mention that Eduardo Affini, the Italian rider of Jumbo Visma, is in the red jersey as of this evening. The, the pass, the parcel, it continues. It began the day, the red jersey, um, on the shoulders of uh, Affini's teammate, Mike Turnison. Affini was doing a lot of good work protecting um, Primoz Roglic, I noticed in the finale today. Um, he is a, a sort of emerging force in Italian cycling. Affini, very good time trialist. Um, he was a European junior time trial champion a few years ago he rode for the SEG under 23 team um you know those boys well don't you were you not managed by SEG Dan yeah I was managed by SEG my uh, my father was actually the DS there for a uh, for a while there you go, there so you a, lot, a lot of good riders have come out of there Dylan uh, Grunewagen Fabio Jakobsen so yeah it's, it was really strong 
And as I say, Afini's a rider who's improving, um, getting stronger and stronger. He began his pro career at Mitchelton Scott and then moved to Jumbo Visma and um, came very close to a stage win in Treviso, the Giro d'Italia, earlier this year. Um, hails from Mantova, which, um, if you can sort of picture Italy, it's right at the top of the peninsula, um, just underneath Lake Garda. It was also the birthplace of Learco Guerra, who's the first rider ever to wear the pink jersey. Um, and he also won the Giro in 1934. Dan, let's hear from some of the protagonists. Let's hear some truly awful audio, because while I'm not in... Spain or I'm not at the race I'm having to rely on third parties shall we say to supply some audio and um, it's not of the greatest qual- quality in some cases I will rectify that when I get to Spain but we will hear here from Sam Bennett and Mads Pedersen the audio there is actually fine so thanks to Amy Cameron from Trek Segafredo and then lastly we'll also hear from Eduardo Affini who's the new leader of the Vuelta a España. It's hard because I think a lot of people are fighting for our wheel. I think it's just a natural flow that people start to kind of go up beside me and squeeze me off. So I had a few tough moments just to hold my, my hands wheel. So the boys did a really, really good job today. Everyone was committed. Julian uh, pulling from, from the beginning and Cataldo taking over. It was not an easy break to control, so they did really, really well. And I think uh, our young guns here they really learned that it's it's actually nicer to stay up there with us in the finals than it is to be in position 80. So both Hompe uh, and uh, Tiberi, they really learned something new today by staying with us. And, and especially Tiberi, he, he did super good. He was there with, I think, three, three, still three Ks to go. So that was really impressive. Uh, and then, of course, Dan, he's there to, to do lead out doing really well keeping us out of problems and yeah Alex we know the story it's pretty much the same he leaves me on the wheel of of Sam and and Sam he opens the sprint and it was a headwind sprint so I was like okay perfect I would open the moment later but yeah I picked the wrong way I I went to the right and then I think McClay from from Ikea he him and Sam came a bit together and I got boxed in so had to stop pedaling and be a bit on the brakes and then go left and then start the sprint again and yeah it destroyed the chances of, of winning the stage but it shows good for the rest of the world so we have still some good opportunities to go okay. it's been uh, seven years since uh, an italian last led the giro what does it mean for you uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's crazy to, to be able to be the leader it's uh, really uh, an honor and uh, I have to thank my team I have to thank my teammate they, they actually they've actually been thinking about it as first uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's really nice from them to, to give me the sort of gift and I'm really, I'm really happy and proud of it the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España powered by Super Sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Super Sapiens have their own podcast in which you can find out more about Super Sapiens and how to fuel more effectively for your ride and for your events. It's hosted by Zylon Van Eck and Dr. David Littman. And in the most recent episode, Zylon turns the mic on Dr. Littman, so to speak, because he is the head of applied science at Super Sapiens and he's a very good marathon runner too. And he has been answering all manner of questions about how to fuel effectively and how to get the most out of the Super Sapiens technology. And in this clip from the latest episode, Dr. Lippmann talks about something that really chimes with me too, and that is the importance of varying the types of food you eat, especially on long rides. What I would say to anybody who's planning long stuff, and when I'm saying long, I'm talking about probably anything over about eight hours, maybe maybe six hours, is you're probably going to get sick of what you're having. So bring a variety of stuff that you may not necessarily want 
make sure some of it's not sweet as well because a lot of people will get really sick of sweet things. And I know like even for me in a marathon, we're talking under three hours, I get sick of sweet stuff by the end of that. At the end of that marathon, I want nothing more sweet for the rest of the day. I want salt, I want bitter, I want everything else. So be weary that that might happen to you in a long event and have plans there. So Dan, second consecutive victory for Sam Bennett, your compatriot, Sam Bennett. How well do you know Sam? Obviously, I've known Sam from right when he was a junior at national team level. So it's, uh, although we've never had a whole lot to do with each other, whenever we cross paths in races and at nationals and stuff, we obviously uh, give a friendly word to each other. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just shows how important confidence is to a sprinter because he's had these legs all year, obviously. And it's once you get, he's obviously got his mojo back now with that sprint victory. And also, it takes time for his new lead out to gel because obviously he's got a uh, he's working with Ryan Mullen and Danny Van Poppel here, and they're doing a great job. The, the, I think they've been doing a pretty good job since the start of the year. And I mean, Sam Bennett, you'll know this, Dan. Um, he tends to be very self-critical, and in interviews, he's always well been self-critical this year and said that the lead out has been performing well right from the start of the year, particularly Danny Van Poppel, and and it's been Sam himself who's not been quite up to. Um, or, or not being able to reproduce the, the kind of form that he, he obviously had been doing for the previous three or four years. Um, today, they were impressive in a kind of unconventional way in the sense that Ryan Mullen um, was on the front with about a kilometre to go, but then he really, he really um, pumped the brakes because I guess he knew that Sam and, and Van Poppel weren't on his wheel. And I suppose that's a smart thing to do in that situation. And then they came pretty late um, or Danny Van Poppel came pretty late, but, but perfectly. It was quite a wide road and um, there was plenty of space for them to move up on the, on the left. And um, it got quite an, a nice clear run um, and quite a long sprint. It was as well in the end. I think it shows the confidence that the whole group is moving forward. Yes. Sam may have said they were doing a good job, but it's uh, a lot of the, the sprint, these sprints is all about the lead out. And also, I mean, Ryan Mullen, he's doing a, it's a new role for him, essentially. Obviously, another Irish rider who I know well. And he's never really been in, although he's done lead outs with Trek, Segafredo in the past years, he's been more of a classic rider and used earlier in the lead outs, like probably 10, five kilometres ago even. Not in that final kilometre. So he's obviously worked, been brought into Bora to work alongside Sam. And they seem to have got a really great rapport going. And it just shows they really believe in him now. And they're, they're making these decisions at the spur of the moment, which is, uh, yeah, it was intelligent riding today for sure. Dan, I mentioned that tendency that Sam has to sort of beat himself up, that kind of self-flagellation. I mean, is that something that you've noticed and that when you've witnessed it and heard it, you've sort of winced as someone who maybe didn't suffer from that and sort of knows that kind of positive self-talk is also important or, um, or, or is it something that you can empathise with? In fact, he's putting it out there. I mean, he's he's obviously trying to protect his teammates who mm. it is very easy for people to blame. As I said, everybody sees the leader has been super important. He's protecting them and he's taking it all on the chin, which he's taking all the pressure on his own, on his own shoulders. And that was really, yeah, that's perhaps why his results have suffered this year. Cause he's just basically putting too much pressure on himself and maybe getting left out of the tour de France was a big, uh, almost like the reset button and allowed him to kind of step back and then come into the Vuelta, a race a race that he was very successful at in 2020. And he's, uh, yeah, he's really come out all, all flying, like flying now with his, uh, these first two two victories. But I was always self-critical as a rider. I think you, because you always see yourself as being able to improve. The difference is you just don't put it out there into the media, into the public. You, you kind of put up a front because I think it's, it's important to kind of, really straight after the race it's very easy to speak from the heart be emotional and, and say the wrong thing and be over critical of yourself and it, it can it's important i think it's quite important just to keep it almost bottled up and then get back to the bus and reset and really analyze well, what did i do right because that's also important to to really as you say you need to be able to be self-critical but also analyze what you actually did right because you didn't it's not like you're doing everything wrong. I mean, it was the focus of that self-criticism most of the time, was it your preparation? Because, you know, we always imagine that once you get to the race, there's a, there's a sort of limited, limited latitude um, in terms of the, 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 the parameters of your performance are really set by what you do in advance of any given race, particularly big races like Grand Tours. Um, and of course, you're going to do your best on 
each given day so um it, it's almost hard i mean i i guess it's different for sprinters because positioning is more of an issue and timing and instinct but um yeah with you was it more thinking back to what you've done in the in the preceding weeks and, and and thinking how you could have done things differently as you say there's no i've never seen any reason to look back i think it's all about looking how you, what you can do going forward and learning from your mistakes and it really depends if it's a condition point of view whereas as you say once you get into the race especially into a stage race there's not much you can do other than hope that your conditions are going to improve during the race which it often does i mean you you very often have different conditions like form from stage one to stage 20. So that that's something that can change. I think the if it's a tactical error that he's being critical about, that shows that he's just trying to improve, but those moments are uh, instinctive in the sprint finishes. So it's really difficult to actually change your natural reactions when they're happening mm. at 70 kilometers an hour and you're you're making these judgments. So it's uh, I'd be really interested to see how much of that analysis goes on behind the scenes at Bora. Obviously that's all behind closed doors, but I know at Quick Step they're very you'd have a quite an in-depth debrief after each stage, even if you've won. Like to, to just to see, I mean, even being a climber in the in the in the Tour de France with uh, Marcel Kittel, we would be we'd sit down at night and analyze exactly what happened in the lead out and how they can improve. And that's when you're winning. So Imagine if it's going wrong. You, it's it's a very very important part. We've all the cameras available, all the information available now. So it'd be interested. I'd be really interested to see. Obviously, we're never going to find that out, but to to know how much that goes on within Bora, or if it's down to Sam himself to actually pick up on where they can improve, and that's why he's been so self-critical. Dan, we'll, we'll maybe talk about that a little bit. The experience of doing Grand Tours as more of a GC rider with a, a sprinter and uh, a team having sort of divided priorities, and we'll touch on that later. But um, just generally speaking, having observed these three stages in the Netherlands, um, from the point of view of someone who was a GC rider, I mean, how how would you have approached them and how stressful do you think they would have been? I think one important thing to point out is that it was a lot more stressful than it looked. I mm. mean, the fight for position would have been like very intense and just the nervousness because as a GC rider now, you never want to be caught out of position. You spend those whole stages worrying about where you are in the peloton and having to be, move up constantly and, because at the end of the day, there's 175 riders in the peloton and they all need need to well, want to be in the front and that they've all got a director sportive in their ear saying, be at the front. So although on television it was quite a boring stage, I think those guys are going to be yeah quite tired. I think mean, it, it takes a lot out of you mentally, especially these foreign starts, because they're, it's just a different type of racing to what the guys will be enjoying, I suppose, once they reach Spain. The roads are more technical, especially in, in, uh, in Holland with all the road furniture and that fret of wind, even though... There was only 20 kilometers an hour of wind today, which was nowhere near enough to split the peloton. Everybody still worries about it being that having an impact on the race. And that's that's enough just to cause that trepidation, going anxiety throughout the day. But I think the majority of GC riders will be very, very content to have got out of Holland in this in this position, in the position they're in. Not much has really happened. And now the real racing can start in, in their eyes. I have to pull you up. You said Holland there. We had this discussion yesterday with Larry Warbass. I'm only mentioning it because um, I've been told off about this before. The Netherlands. Ah, you do, you you know as well. Um, Yeah, I don't think we're in Holland today. I might be wrong about that. Just talking about Holland versus the Netherlands, um, it's reminded me, your your old teammate, um, Ryder Heijdal, used to absolutely adore the Netherlands. Um, I remember this. Whenever I would encounter him, particularly any any sort of springtime when the classics were were near or had just happened, um, he would be raving about the Netherlands and how he thought it was the greatest country on earth. Why Why was that? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't... Do, you, do you have any memory of that? Well, it's because he did have this, his time in the U23 Rowerbank team. So whether he really enjoyed his time there or not, I don't, I'm not really sure. But and Amstel Gold was, well, the what's it called now? The Amstel, yeah. Amstel was always one of his favourite races. And obviously he got second there the one year, the year of the volcano, the Icelandic volcano. I can't remember what year that was. So he was always a big fan of those races. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure why. It's a, it's a strange place to race a bike. I mean, obviously my first Walter Espanyol in 2009 started in Holland, in Netherlands. I keep saying Netherlands. 
It might have been in Holland. Where, did it, where was it again yeah. in 2009? It may, it may have been. Uh, I can't. I think we started. It started in Assen. Okay. With my first prologue was on the motor racing circuit, and I crashed at to turn three, which actually, uh, yeah, there's a bit of oil on the road. It was wet, so that was not the best start to my Grand Tour career. But uh, but yeah, it was in that whole start, the whole three stages. Then the last one finished in Liège with a big crash at the roundabout, and it was just uh, that's how, that. Those three stages, or I think it was four stages actually that year, just typified exactly how you don't want to start to go with the rain and wind and yeah, well, horrific well, weather, and lots of crashes. I mean, you talk about the road furniture as well. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but I always think that Spain is the sort of simplest place to race a bike in Europe, just from the point of view of the, the roads themselves. They're pretty wide, pretty good, and you know that you get these long stretches of 20 30 kilometers with zero road furniture because you know there are parts of the country that are quite sparsely populated and it's the absolute opposite of the netherlands there's not there's just not many roads in some parts of spain so generally you end up on these big wide national roads that are just going from city to city especially in the transition stages the only thing in spain is when you come into the cities and the towns there seems to be a lot of roundabouts and an increasing number now so the finishes are just as technical as any other but uh overall it's a lot when you're racing in Holland, you don't get 500 meters without a roundabout or road furniture. Or I used to liken the Amstel Gold Race as being almost like race, like a Need for Speed uh, video game. As far mm. as you just you have all these things being thrown at you, and you the race, the six-hour race used to pass. It used to be the quickest race mentally of the mm. season because you're just so focused and concentrated all day. Because you have to be, and you you get to the. It's more tiring mentally than it is physically racing in Holland, and that it just creates this bigger this this challenge that uh, yeah this, this greater challenge. El ritmo de la vuelta, the rhythm of the vuelta. It is el ritmo de la vuelta. As those who have listened to our first two episodes we'll know this is our daily trip down musical memory lane revisiting an official Vuelta song and the year when it was chosen as the race anthem today we're going back to the year of Dan Martin's birth 1986 the official song was Take On Me by the Norwegian synth pop dream boats Aha I think the story is relatively well known the song was released twice unsuccessfully before a third version became an international hit in 1985 and the following year was the uh, Walter's official song Thirty-five years later, Dan, Take On Me became the fifth 20th century music video to rack up a billion views on YouTube. Any guesses what the others might be? 20th century music wow. videos that have over a billion views on, there are probably more than five now, but the first five were, any guesses? Bohemian Rhapsody? Yes, one. I got one. Oh, uh, after uh, that, I don't know. Uh, smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, and there were two... Yeah. Apparently by Guns N' Roses, November Rain and Sweet Child of Mine. Anyway, that year's Vuelta started in Palma de Mallorca on the 22nd of April. Yes, the Vuelta did used to start in April. And it finished in Jerez de la Frontera on May the 13th. It was won by Álvaro Pino by just over a minute from Robert Miller, who had won the stage to Lagos de Codonga and taken the Mayot Amarillo only to lose it definitively to Pino six days later. Scott had been runner-up the previous year, looked set to dislodge Pino on the mountaintop finish on the Sierra Nevada five days from the end, but his long-range attack eventually came to nothing. Pino and Miller crossing the line together and the former consolidating his advantage in the final day, TT. Um, Jerez that year became the seventh Spanish city to host the final stage of the Vuelta. Any guesses at the others, Dan? Uh, Spanish Seven. cities that, that have hosted the finish of the world, the last stage of the Vuelta. You, you probably... Uh, well, you, Madrid's easy. Uh, Santiago de Compostela. Correct. Uh, Valencia. 
No. Um, for many years, the Vuelta finished in the Basque country because the race was run by a Basque newspaper, El Correo. So you can probably guess a couple on the basis of that. Yeah. Uh, Bilbao and San Vittoria? Sebastian. San Sebastian. San Sebastian. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of others, Salamanca and Miranda de Ebro. I would imagine that was well, certainly the smallest place to host the uh, yeah. final stage of the Vuelta España. Uh, this Vuelta España, Dan, um, I'm going to ask you bluntly, who do you think is going to win it? I think that Simon Yates is going to win it. Wow. I think, it's, uh, I really, it, I think he's got something to prove since the Giro and he seems in really good condition. He's got a team de- dedicated to him other than... Uh, is he though, has control, he though, but- Dan? Are they really mm. dedicated to him? Because they've been, I mean, there are they're obviously three or four decent rulers in that team. There always are in bike exchanges teams. Um, and they've been doing a reasonable amount of work for Caden Groves. Um, oh, it's difficult to tell, isn't it? When you watch the last few kilometers of sprint stages these days, you never know what work is being done for the team sprinter and what's being done for the GC rider. Often it's two birds killed with one stone, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, that's, I always found it beneficial to have a sprinter in the team. And especially a good sprinter because you you have a reason to be sad. like the peloton is basically there's a lot of hierarchy goes on and the sprinters teams if you don't have a sprinter they'll even if you're a strong gc team they'll still try to push you out of the way and you don't need to be up there whereas you have a sprinter you're allowed to sit up there much more easily and so it, and during the vuelta there's always one or two crosswind stages so they're going to need those big guys it's you see a lot of teams load their roster with climbers before the vuelta because it's a very mountainous race but I yeah you have problems on the crosswind stages then so and generally speaking unless you're going to take on the race there's always one or two there's Jumbo Visma there's Ineos who are going to control the mountain stages so I would always prefer to have a sprinter and a couple of real real big guys to protect you on the flat stages than uh to, to really have a good shot at the GC. Uh, Juan Antonio Flecha on Eurosport a couple of days ago, Spanish Eurosport, made a similar point. He, he also said that it was very useful when well, there was a focus and also the potential morale boost the team, a GC rider could get from, you know, a sprinter getting a, a good result in those, those first few days, um, as opposed to just being relieved that you've got through safely. Um, he said that it was a positive focus. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It means that you, you wake up in the morning and the team isn't talking about you. It's talking about, let's go out there and try and get a stage result today. And that, that that's a completely different mentality towards leaving the bus in the morning and saying, okay, let's just stay safe today. But that's quite a negative attitude. So I think that's, and also, as you say, it's it's spreading the pressure. If Caden Groves goes out there and wins a stage this first week, a team always goes into a Grand Tour looking to win a stage. And as soon as that stage victory is done, the attitude normally is, well, everything else is a bonus from now on. So, yeah, it, it's it's always nice to be able to have a, a few different roles, not roles, but yeah, cards to play. Dan, just looking at the course, it's something I've asked all of the guests so far, just about this Vuelta being slightly unlike recent editions in that, and um, there aren't too many monster stages, with the exception of the big mountaintop finish on Sierra Nevada, 2,550 meters above sea level. But there aren't any days with more than 4,000 meters um, plus of vertical gain of climbing. Um, and how does that affect Simon Yates's chances? I think it suits him really well. I think it's uh, it's these explosive mountain stages, and it it's go- the route is going to reward somebody who is consistent over the three weeks and although obviously simon's got a history now of having a bad day every now and again during the grand tour this race will be won by the person who, who has the least bad bad day if that makes sense i mean everybody has a bad day and with so many mountain stages it's going to be uh important to just limit your losses on those bad days and i think the Vuelta kind of has it creates a, a really exciting race by not having everybody focus on one stage because generally if you have these epic mountain stages it negates the racing in the in the run-ups those days because everybody's worried about them they're worried about conserving energy i don't want to go too deep today because in two days time there's a mountain that, that huge day that if i have a bad day i'll go i'll lose loads of time so it seems to be a, a race this year that there's a lot of places to attack throughout the three weeks but there's also a lot of places that can trip you up so it's uh it's going to keep it unpredictable and I think it means you need to watch every day. I mean, one characteristic of the route, Dan, is um, quite a lot of finishes that suit Primoz Roglic. You could say, I mean, in any Grand Tour, there are a lot of finishes that suit Primoz Roglic because he's that good of a rider. But, um, you know, 
bonus seconds, the amount of time he's gained in bonus seconds has been a feature of his welters in the last few years. There have been, I think there was the, it was the 2020 uh, welter that he won. If you calculated, if you totted up all the bonuses, he won the race thanks to the bonuses over Richard Carapaz. Um, your prediction that Simon Yates is going to win, is that, do you make that... Um, while thinking that Simon Yates could beat Roglic a la Pidal, or are you thinking that Roglic is coming in not quite al dente to this welter and maybe even injured, maybe even hurting, and we're not going to see the Primoz Roglic we're accustomed to seeing? It's true. They couldn't have any more different run-ups to the race. Obviously, Simon's come in having uh, won a couple of races in top condition. Roglic hasn't raced since he pulled out of the Tour de France, and... By the sounds of it, he hasn't really trained much, or that's what they're trying to have us believe. But I don't think he'd be on the start line if he wasn't, if he wasn't ready to contest the overall. But yeah, I mean, it's it's purely a case of these steep finishes. Yes, of course they suit Roglic, but I think if, with the run-up he's had to the race, he, even if he has been able to string together a couple of good weeks of training, it doesn't give you that depth to be able to race over three weeks. And it's also going to be a very very hot final week I believe or find that middle week especially is going to be very hot which is the stage to Sierra Nevada but if the conditions continue to be as uh, warm as they have been in Spain it's uh that that's also going to be a factor and I, I think Simon that's one thing that I, my my prediction could trip off I think Simon's not the best in the in the really really hot conditions so it's uh the type of climbs that are around I think they're ones that suit Simon really Simon Yates really well but as you say, Primoz is good at any type of climb yeah I mean so it's... it really depends on which type of, of Primoz is there yeah, and, and just on the bonuses and on those um, climbs at the end of stages, there are quite a number of riders um, in the field who could steal those bonus seconds. Um, it's quite well in, endowed with punchers. This was Di Spagna. I mean, Alaphilippe's there, obviously. Um, you've got guys like Higita, even people like Juan Ayuso, who, you know, there's a lot of excitement about a UAE 19-year-old. Um, they're all riders who who will be sprinting at the top of four finishes, like the one we've got on Tuesday in La Guardia, if everyone comes in um, to the bottom of that together. So that will be interesting. I also think um, the breakaway. Yes. I think the breakaway will win a lot of stages. I mean, yeah. it's going to be, there's not really... With a race like this, is going to be that was the difference in in 2020 when when Primoz won a lot of the a lot of well, three or four stages I think, and the, there was a lot of short mountain stages early on in the race when the GC was still available, so there wasn't so much interest from other teams to mm. go in the breakaway. Whereas I think quite quickly we're going to see a, a, a hierarchy established, and you're going to see riders go to the Volta Spanning now, looking to lose time in order to go in the breakaway and win stages. Mm. And I think that's going to take away a lot of the bonus seconds. Dan, um, I also wanted to ask you about Remco Evenepoel and particularly well, something I touched on with Ian Boswell a couple of days ago, the, the, the culture or lack of a, a Grand Tour culture at Quickstep. Now, you rode for that team. You mentioned riding the Tour de France with Marcel Kittel twice. On two occasions, you finished in the top 10 in the Tour de France with Kittel in the team and in 2017 with Kittel winning, winning five stages. However, you know, as I said to Ian... Quickstep have had four top fives in their history. They've had two podium finishes in their history. Added to that is the sort of scepticism, which, I mean, I must admit, I still harbour a bit of scepticism about Remco's aptitude for Grand Tours. Um, but increasingly, people are falling into two camps. Remco sceptics or Remco believers, um, as far as Grand Tours are concerned. In which camp are you? I think he's still very young to be aiming for a Grand Tour, even though he's obviously one of the best riders in the world and he keeps seems to keep upsetting the form book, kind of, yeah, doing these unbelievable rides because normally you don't win Liège because I'm Liège at 21 years old or, or whatever he is now. <laughs> but it's um, it's one of the hardest, well, one of the most competitive fields we've seen in a Grand Tour for a long time. And I think he's going to, it's a with a Grand Tour like this, it's got so, so many difficult stages. But also that going back to the experience of his quick step team, I think it more comes down to the experience of the directors in guiding mm. the team towards a grand tour victory and keep and keeping that composure. Because I think we see with they're used to this aggressive style of racing and going into every day trying to yeah get a result. I saw I think it was yesterday. I'm not sure where Remco finished today, but uh, he was uh, I think he was 13th on the stage yesterday. Yeah, it's it's only a little bit of effort, but you wouldn't you don't need to be that far forward. Mm. And that's taking risk and it's making a bigger effort. And that's little bits of that that shows a lack of experience as far as 
being the bean counter of saving that little bit of energy every day that counts on stage 19 and 20 and yeah you, you've only got a certain amount of energy to burn in a grand tour and it's going to be interesting to see how obviously in the giro last year when i raced against Rimka, he was very aggressive in the first week 10 days and then then he ran out of gas you know and it's uh i think it, it, he's got a lot to learn still but it this that's what it's part of it they don't they don't seem to have any expectation for him it, the pressure is coming from outside where people are saying getting you, excited about what he can achieve as you said the Remco believers you, do you think do you not think I mean I think there's always a coded message in everything that Patrick Lefebvre says even I saw some quotes from him this morning about Jumbo Visma and how they were on another planet I'm not sure those are the exact words he used but they they seem to be barbed those comments and um I can't believe whatever he says about Remco Vanderpool and not putting pressure on him some part of me does not quite believe that they built a team around him for this race. Yeah. And I think it's, it must be the, well, it's probably the most climber heavy quick step team we've ever seen in any race, I'd say. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's again, but also the team is stacked with riders who don't have any experience in riding for a Grand Tour leader. As a, as a team leader, as a GC guy, you need that calming influence. You need that bit of experience around you just to tell you to calm down when you don't, or just, get out the wind when you don't need to or and the Vuelta is a special race whereby you, you can sit afford to sit back and relax for a lot of the race as we were saying earlier about the big wide roads the easier terrain that the peloton there's a lot of time to relax during the Vuelta it's not like the Tour de France that you need to be in the top 20 basically the whole race so learning those moments when you can sit back it especially when you've got these super explosive finishes it's something that Simon Yates does really well it's something that like Primoz He's got so much experience now in the Vuelta. He'll know when to do it. You need to be in, a, in an atmosphere that builds, that makes you just feel confident and comfortable. And I think a lot of the confidence that Remco has just comes from his sheer talent and his self-belief. The people around him need to be really calming and just understand the race and give him the right information. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how far he can go. And it sounds like you've joined me in the camp of the Remco sceptic. So welcome to the country club. Before we do leave, before the race leaves, the Netherlands, who I thought I'd check in with someone who has been there over the last three days. It's time for our Encuentro del Día, our meeting of the day. And it's with the Dutch journalist, the Telegraaf journalist, Hans Brugenberg, who I spoke to when he was on the way to the finish in Breda earlier today. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Hans. Hi, Daniel. Hans. Hi. Hi. Hans Rugenberg from the Telegraph. Where are you, mate? That's correct. Where are you? Uh, I'm I'm close to Breda now. Uh, the 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 finish and start of the of the third stage of the Vuelta. So uh, I'm uh, I think I'm ten minutes away from the from the finish line now. Tell us something we perhaps didn't already know about Breda. Wow, it's it's a uh, kind of an old old town, but probably you you knew that already. Yeah? It's an old town in the Netherlands. Uh, I think um, yesterday, Hans. Uh, yesterday yeah. in the podcast, I talked about. I I went to Breda a few years ago. Well, many years ago now, to oh, see you Jeroen Blyleven's, um, who oh, yeah. was about to take on the record, the world land speed record of Fred Rompelberg. But oh, he, yeah. can you remember? Can you remember all of that? I don't know yeah. what I don't know yeah. what happened in the end, whether he did or he didn't. But that was the one. The one visit I've made to Breda. Okay, and you know about Carnival? Carnival is is, is a big party always in February, where the people uh, drinking and, and and listening to music and and dancing with with the handle on each other's shoulders. Maybe that you didn't know, or did you? No, I didn't know that. I knew yesterday. We also talked about um, is it Hoogheidendag? Hoogheide. The the, the red head red hair day. Which is used to be, in, which used to be in Breda, but has now moved to Tilburg. Did you... Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I didn't know about it, but but I live in South Holland. It's it's far away from from Brabant. No, it's only an hour away. But oh, okay. Uh, okay, we call Brabant below the river, so uh, um, that that's far away from us. Okay, but go on. Well, Hans, we are nearing the end of this Gran Salida of the Vuelta España in uh, the Netherlands. Judging by the crowds, at least, it's been a huge success. What is yeah. the word and what is the feeling there on the ground about how this, how successful this start of the Vuelta has been in the Netherlands? Well, in one word, it's spectacular. And, and 
well, that's what we already knew from from the the last uh, Grande Pass of Grand Tours because, uh, as you may know, this is already the the fifth Grande Pass of a Grand Tour in the Netherlands since 2009 when the Vuelta was in Asse. But uh, and every every time we saw huge crowds along the roads uh, during the team presentation. Well, we know the Netherlands is a cycling country, but but also the riders. Yeah, I spoke to Danny van Poppel, Wilco Kelderman yesterday again, and they said, yeah, we knew. Uh, they were crazy about cycling, but we didn't expect these kind of crowds uh, again and every time again. So, like I said, it's kind of spectacular. Hans, there are a lot of Dutch riders in the field. Um, have you spoken yeah. to riders over the last few months who have said specifically that they wanted to do the, the Vuelta because of the start in the Netherlands? Yeah, I spoke to a few of them, uh, like like Timon Ahrensman. Uh, he did the Giro, of course, and then he already told me that he would like to do the Vuelta uh, in his home country because also he didn't go to the Tour de France but but for every Dutch rider a, a start in the Netherlands is, is, is something special and we see it again well of course we saw the, the, the team time trial with Jimbo Visma winning and then Robert Geising taking the red jersey he never wore a leader's jersey in a Grand Tour um, so that was very special for him although he wanted to do the Tour de France, but but this makes everything right for him again because, like like every country, we saw it in Denmark as well, where how special it was for the Danish riders, and now in the Netherlands. So, uh, yeah, a few riders I spoke before they told, yeah, we want to be there because, uh, well, like Geesink and Kelderman and Dylan van Baarle were already there in Utrecht in 2015, and they thought it was kind of special kind of special it was very special then and they wanted to uh, repeat and enjoy it again and Hans as well the well it's been a great weekend for the Dutch in the sense that you've had Jumbo Visma winning the team time trial and then two Dutchies in the red jersey Um, Mike Turnison's an interesting rider took the yellow jersey of course at the Tour de France uh, three years ago now we don't know him that well well we know that he's leaving Jumbo Visma um, at the end of the year but tell us a little bit about Mike Turnison as maybe as a character something we again that we don't know about him yeah well he he was already with Jumbo Visma then it was Lotto but uh, and then he went to Sunweb uh, but he couldn't find his way there because yeah he's kind of a he's he's a classic rider normally he he wants to uh, compete in the classics and and he did some uh, ni- nice scores over there, but 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 not like he wanted. But he, he's he's certainly classic rider, rider. But he came to Jumbo Visma to be the lead out of Dylan Groenewegen. Dylan is already away. He went to a bike exchange, uh, but but he came to be the lead out for Dylan Groenewegen. And then, like you said before, luckily he he won the yellow jersey in 2019 because Dylan went uh, to the ground and then he sprinted and he beat Sagan and Caleb Ewan. So he he. He can sprint as well, but but he's not a real sprinter. Um, and like I said, um, he's a classic rider and not someone you think he would be collecting a, a leader's jersey from a Grand Tour, but he already has the yellow and, and the red now. So that's kind of special for him. Yesterday on the podcast, I think I said that I speculated that he would probably qualify for Rudhagendag, Redhead Day. Would, would, you, would you agree? <laughs> Mike Turnison, gingerhead? <laughs> no, I think he's blonde. <laughs> uh, we we call Stephen, that strawberry Stephen. blonde, Hans. <laughs> strawberry blonde. If, if Stephen Kreisweig was here, he would be. Of course he uh, would. Sam Oman, of course, <laughs> would definitely qualify. Julius Vandenberg as well would, would qualify, I think. Um, Hans, just the last, last thing. Um, on the well, it wasn't even the eve of the race. It was on the, the it was on Friday itself. Jumbo Visma announced yeah. the signing of Wilco. Kelderman and Dylan Van Baala. Now I know, well, particularly yeah. Van Baala's move had been rumoured for a long time. Well, most people knew that he was going to go there. However, yeah. the timing of the announcement shocked a few people, and it seemed to me <laughs> almost as a bit of a passive-aggressive move by Jumbo Visma. Were any word on the ground to that effect? Would you any sense that Ineos were maybe a bit upset? Bora would were a little bit upset. Well, I didn't hear anything from Bora or Ineos. Um, and, and I must say, I, I I didn't ask yet, but but I'm I, I'm supposed. But but you can imagine, of course, 
just before the Vuelta. Well, the first thing is these team knew these teams knew already that they were going to uh, Jumbo Visma, huh? but now it's in the open, and maybe there's there's some controversy that they might do some work for a Jumbo in the in the Vuelta. You could you could think about that. So that's kind of strange, and 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 I think you're right. It, it's kind of strange to do it right before for, for the Vuelta start. Uh, or on the day of the world to start to to bring bring the news outside, but but like I said, all the teams knew already what was going on, but uh, but now it's public, eh? And in Wilco's case, Hans, is this him definitively renouncing his ambitions to maybe, well, lead a team at the Tour de France one day? Is this him accepting that he's well, he's going to be a domestique deluxe, or is it more yeah. a case that he just wants to join the best team in the world at the moment? I think it's kind of both because maybe he thinks he's, he's he still gets a chance to to ride the Giro d'Italia for his own GC. But like I, we heard him in the Giro already, and then uh, he was like, "Well, we have to see. Um, we have a, we have a lot of GC riders, and we have to see what 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 I'm capable of." And it's the same now in the world. So I think more or less he already. Uh, thinks about not really uh, get the stress of, of being a GC rider, and and he sees what, yeah, what's going on in in, in the next few weeks, and probably his move to Jumbo Visma could be like like a Hasing uh, role. Eh? Um, Hasing a few years ago was also a GC rider, but he didn't like the stress, and we know Wilco, well, he fell a lot of his bike. Because of the stress, of course. So, yeah, with with Jonas Vingegaard and uh, and Primoz Roglic, uh, yeah, he could be a perfect helper. Uh, and and I think he he suits uh, in, in that role. And we saw that in the Giro as well. And maybe we see it in the Vuelta also. Well, Hans, I guess you're approaching Breda, so I will leave you to enjoy the stage and do your work for today. Um, are you coming to Spain? I probably. Will when uh, Wilco <laughs> or uh, Timon Asman uh, will will do a good GC and then then I'm gonna come over. But the first week I'm gonna watch from home and then uh, yeah, if those guys uh, will do well because Timon Asman, well, he's capable of doing a, a, a good GC, so uh, maybe he's the one to watch. But uh, then I will come probably to to Spain and meet you. Excellent, excellent. Look forward to it, Hans. Well, it's been good to chat okay. and enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, Hans. Yeah, you as ciao, well. Ciao. Then I'll see you. Ciao, ciao. Hasta luego. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our longest-term supporters, of course. Science in Sport offers all of our listeners 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. The discount code is still valid. It's still working. If you are having any difficulty with it, it's almost certainly because you're trying to apply it to a shopping basket which already has some discounted items in it. The SISCP25 code doesn't work in conjunction with any other discount codes that Science in Sport might be running. But you can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com and they, of course, have everything you need to fuel your ride before, during and afterwards, whether it's energy gels or the beta fuel or the delicious tiramisu cake bars. I'll be stocking up on all of that before the second half of our trip around Scotland, the Tour de Cos, which we will be doing in a few weeks' time. Listen out for that in Explore a bit later on this year. But that discount code again... SISCP25. We are heading to Spain. I am heading to Spain. And well, it's time for our last regular feature of the episode. Once again, take it away, Rob Hatch. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. La Cena de Ayer, uh, yesterday's evening meal, um, that's the part of this feature that I'm responsible for every day. Dan is not really going to kick in until I do get to the Basque Country, which I'm very much looking forward to tomorrow. However, um, last night, again, not really much of note when it comes to Spanish food um, that I ate here in London. I did have a nice uh, Rioja, uh, Rioja Reserva from 2016. Dan, you like your wine, don't you? 
I seem to remember. Are you a bit of a collector? Especially Spanish wine. Yeah, we get into uh, the Ribeiro de Duero. We should actually try and do a t- uh, Volte Espana de wine. Well, well it's, funny you should mention, it's funny you should mention that, Dan, because we actually do that, the cycling podcast, in association with Divine Cellars. And I'm glad you mentioned it because tomorrow on the rest day, um, our um, traditional wine podcast will drop. And that's me talking to Greg Andrews of Divine Cellars and Angus McNabb, their Spanish specialist. We're talking about the, the six wines that we have chosen representing this year's Vuelta route. And well, you can order those wines from www.divine, that's the letter D, vinecellars.com. So stay tuned for that tomorrow. Um, the podcast, not to everyone's taste, because um, we know that a lot of people consider wine chat to be pretentious nonsense and you're fully entitled to that opinion um dan what about the stage because we are going into rioja country just about on tuesday so um tell us what we've got in store on tuesday it's gonna be interesting to see the race arrive in spain just to see obviously we all it's a totally different start to different style of racing how the weather's going to be i mean we uh dan, dan tell us where we're going from and to first okay just to stay we're going to the Vittoria Gastes and we're going to finish in La Guardia. It's quite a me- they're calling it medium mountain stage, which I'm not really that area. I think the profile never really tells the full story. I think it, it's always a lot of ups and downs. And yeah, it's normally a little bit of wind as well. So hopefully we'll be, uh, we'll be treated to some echelons at some point. Honestly, the break, it's got breakaway written all over it. Uh, hilltop finish is too hard for the sprinters. Yeah, it's Can't quite really tough. see any team chasing it down. Maybe Quickstep will chase it down. Yeah, I had a good look at this last kilometre on Velo Viewer, and um, it, I mean, the road books at the Vuelta are, are pretty shoddy. Um, in this day and age, I I don't know how many people at home have actually looked at the road book that you can now download on PDF format, but compared to some other races, they're not very detailed at all. It doesn't really matter for the teams because they all have their own applications. A lot of them use Velo Viewer, and that's the one I use as well. Um, but the the final rise up there to the finish is sort of consistently about 9% down for the last kilometre um, or last 1.2 kilometres. So it's, it's going to be an interesting finale. I think it's not it's not flat coming into there and it's quite a I looked at it as well on Villa Viewer and it's uh it's quite a straightforward run in. So uh yeah, it's gonna be a big fight for position. Uh I mean I guess there we'll see what we're talking about with Quick Step. If they're going to ride it's a perfect finish for Alaphilippe. So will they chase the breakaway and look for a stage victory with him? But that's going to burn a lot of resources if they're really looking for a, a GC ride with uh with Remco. So it it's the stage is going to be decided on Who's who and how big the breakaway is? I mean, that's uh, I would say no sprint, no sprint team is going to chase down with that with that cat free in the final and then a descent straight to the finish. It's going to be interesting to see how Quick Step approach not just Tuesday but also Wednesday as well because that's another day that may suit Alaphilippe with a uh, tough climb, a typical Basque Country climb um, on the road into Bilbao. Dan, you had a bit of a mixed relationship with the Tour of the Basque Country. You. Um, you didn't do it every year, far from it. You were second once on general classification in 2019, but you didn't go back after that. Um, you had a couple of DNFs there. You did well in 2011, I think, and you, was that your first one? Um, but generally speaking, how did you, how would you sum up your relationship with that race? Uh, Bus Country, it's a great race. It's a race I really enjoy, but it was always just a stepping stone towards the Ardennes Classics. 2020, uh, 2019 was different because uh, I really... I was almost going through like a checklist on my career, I wanted to get a podium there and I ended up getting second. It came really close to the win in uh, 2019. But uh, but other than that, I mean, the, the DNF you saw, they were purposeful because mm. I was, I always found that the Tour of the Basque Country was a little bit too much, just that close to the Arden Classics. So I always used to just do three, four days, get the legs going and then like quit the last two days just to really get home early, recover and just get that little bit more freshness before the Classics. So, yeah, it's a race that if it was in a different part of the calendar or if my objectives were different, we uh, yeah, I probably would have done more often. But uh, a lot of riders saw it as perfect preparation for the cl- for the classics, but I I didn't. I always felt doing Paranese and then Catalonia or Terreno and then Catalonia was always better because it, it gave you more time to recover, be fresher and do some specific training. But as far as the region goes, the fans are amazing. Uh, yeah, obviously, the, this Walter started there in 2020 when I was quite successful at the start and finishing on a rate that day, albeit with no fans because of the COVID pandemic. 
uh, yeah, it's, it's just the atmosphere on that, especially that climb on to, to Bilbao on Wednesday. It's the atmosphere on that climb is going to be unbelievable. I think LaGuardia does that does Real High count as Basque Country? I'm not sure. It's, yeah, and this be, is in Victoria this... Gasteiz is. Yes, uh, La Guardia is, you will get Rioja produced just around um, La Guardia, but it's also part of the Basque country. It's, it's actually called uh, Guardia in Basque, in the Basque language. Okay. Um, so just sneaks yeah. inside. It's, I think the, a lot of people will be, again, their profiles that just don't tell this full story. They're really, uh, it's going to be really tricky stages. And uh, But the Basque country always gives good racing, although I think the weather is going to be really good, really hot, so not typical Walter Page Basque weather. Well, Dan, I'm very much looking forward to getting there. Vittoria Gasta is a really beautiful city, a uh, uh, city of two cathedrals, which is very, which is something that's quite rare. And my birthplace, Coventry, also has two cathedrals. They're not quite as beautiful as, well, certainly one of them isn't quite as beautiful as Vittoria uh, Gasta's cathedrals. Um, it's the capital of the Basque country, famous for play, for manu- the manufacture of playing cards. Didn't know that. Um, anyway, I will be there tomorrow evening and the podcast the regular podcasts um, will resume on tuesday we might have dan back on tuesday we might not it might be lucky larry it might be someone else um but i think this well that concludes the evening's entertainment dan i'm gonna thank you and wish you a lovely evening over there on the isle of man and we will definitely be hearing from you later in la vuelta españa olive white <laughs> did i say the isle of man again you did, yeah. Oh, sorry, Dan. A lot of good cyclists come from the island, man. Dan, good evening. Buenas tardes. Uh, hasta luego. Good evening, everybody. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.